You obviously know Kung Fu. Hey, this is Lauren Abaddon. I'm the star of cult classics like King of the Kickboxers, and you're listening to Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. Welcome to the Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. Adjust your speaker box, sit back, relax, and remember, your Kung Fu may be good, but mine is better. <laughs> Joining me tonight is actor, writer, producer, martial artist, known for a fight that many regard as one of the best screen fights ever put on film in King of the Kickboxers, Lauren Avedon. Lauren, thank you so much for joining the Kung Fu Driving Podcast tonight. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's, it's great to be with you and everybody listening. Listen, everybody that's listening knows uh, who you are, uh, but just in case, uh, I want to give everybody an introduction. Wikipedia says that you've been training martial arts for over 30 years now, uh, and some of the numbers, you're a fifth Dan black belt in Taekwondo, an eighth Dan black belt in Hapkido. How did you first get involved in martial arts from the very beginning? From the very beginning, well, let me just correct the record. It's 38 years as we speak now. 38 years, wow. I'm that old. (laughs) And uh, I now have a sixth Don through the cookie wand, but that's all politically, you know, there are issues there. But I also have a ninth Don through the United States Taekwondo Federation and a ninth Don in Hapkido through the International Hapkido Association and World Hapkido Federation. So, you know, I'm always involved in the martial arts. Martial arts is my first love. And uh, I started becoming interested in the martial arts by watching Bruce Lee. I was 11 years old and in Bath, England with my mother and the the son of Fred Astaire's daughter, Ava McKenzie Astaire. And uh, we're there, you know, hanging out and it's nighttime. And he's like, I'm going to go see a movie tonight, Fist of Fury. And he's, you know, five years older than I am or so. And he says, do you want to go? I said, of course, it's starring Bruce Lee. Okay, I don't know who that is, but I heard a little bit about him, but uh, I'd love to go. So I'm there at the ticket booth going, give me the ticket, because I'm certainly not 17. And in England, violence is rated X, and sexual content is rated R, and I'm 11 years old wanting to go into an X-rated movie. <laughs> So I say to the gal, give me the ticket, you know, and I end up sitting next to my pal and watching this incredible display of, you know, martial arts, athleticism and skill, speed. And just I just was completely hooked. I had I had no other uh, sort of idols other than maybe Clint Eastwood or Steve McQueen or whatever was present in 1973. And so that was a great jumping off point for me. And, and through high school, you know, I'd take karate classes going to the, the park across the street. I went to Beverly Hills High School and uh, graduated from there. But, you know, I never met any instructors, anybody who could, you know, really show me what was going on until I walked into Jun Chung Taekwondo and met, uh, you know, Master Chung, Master Simon Ree. Master Philip Ree and, you know, Superfoot Wallace and saw all these people over there. And that was because people that I knew were actually going to that school. And there wasn't much to choose from in in those days in 1980. Mm -hmm. 
There was Kung Fu Sansu. There was Shotokan Karate. There was um, some Beverly Hills Karate Academy that, frankly, was Emil Farkas, I think. And it wasn't for me. There was a few other places. And otherwise, driving to the valley and, you know, again, you, you, you have to kind of do what's close to you. And I'm so grateful that Jun Chung was close to me. Uh, going back to the the film, was there a moment in the film that was that eureka moment for you that said that you need to somehow get involved with martial arts? Well, the first time that I, I saw Bruce, you know, shall we say, trying to restrain himself, because I think part of the story, as I recall, was he had promised not to fight, hmm. but he had this incredible ability and then finally he'd reached the breaking point, but he had restrained himself. So power under control and, and the ability to basically take anyone out at any time, but remaining humble was something that was so appealing to me because being raised by, by a single mother, I didn't have really a man around the house to show me how to be a man. But here's this guy, and I can't give you the particular scene or moment in the film because I haven't watched it recently, but I just watched this man absolutely be everything that epitomized manhood and the warrior spirit that I didn't understand at the time, being a young man of 11, was. And I thought, you know, it, it, look at this guy. He is, he is, a, he is a dude that I want to be. He's able to whoop anybody's ass. And I know, it's, I know it's a movie, but uh, he's and he does so. He's got such charisma. He's got such power. He's got such speed, such eloquence, and such ability to just sort of, you know, be present to everything. And then, you know, uh, from there, I was like, I just want to be. I want to have just a little bit of that for myself. <laughs> and uh, I was hooked. Yeah. Well, what about martial arts then has kept you training in it for as long as it has? Because, you know, getting hooked and starting it is one thing, but to have stayed in it for 38 years, that's that's beyond commitment. Well, thank you, Jeff. I, look, the thing about it is, is martial arts pays for itself in my world because I cannot ever get enough of the paradigm. It's like, it's like going to church for me. Mm -hmm. It's like having this specific set of rules and honor and being around people that are seeking to be the best of themselves, we hope and also display the worst of themselves. But you have this, this uh, area or this space where you can all share, you can all bring what you have, and you can learn from each other, and you can then become better always. And there's never, ever a time, I think, in a martial artist journey where he can't learn, and he can't share, and he can't be, and he can't you know, exercise the best in human beings. And that's the thing about the martial arts that I just will never, ever get enough of. And, you know, I used to say to people, I want to die on the mat because that's, that's how much I love being in that space. So that's why I can never, you know, stop the process or just even being around people that seek to be the best in themselves and express it in the way of the warrior. Yeah, I'm 
new, relatively new to martial arts. I've only been taking it for about a little over a year now because of this show and because of speaking to people like you. The inspiration finally got me to uh, test myself and put myself uh, out there on the mat and and see what I could do. Um, I'm 48. It's not easy for me to be doing this, uh, starting this now, but <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to have started. What does it mean to you to to continue to want to advance and become more accomplished? I mean, 38 years with all the dance that you've uh, reached, why keep going? Why are you that lifelong student? You know, it's not about the Don. You know, the Don is just, it allows you to, you know, I guess share a little bit more, create a little bit more listening or a, a little bit more, again, space for others to to engage in the paradigm. You know, I applaud you so much for at 48 not being stopped. You have uh, a family, you have three kids, you have, you know, so many things on your plate, but yet you want to engage and be a part of a community and a part of a a way that, you know, again, uh, it, it just makes us all a little bit better, I think, to be involved together and have a, a certain paradigm where you use the physical attributes or achievement of perfection in movement or in other you know things or in fighting or in style or in technique to then allow you to transcend all of that and then it's you know it's never been about the rank or the don for me for a while yeah i needed to prove myself but even for 2 years when master chung told me that i could test for my first degree black belt, I didn't feel like I was ready. He said I was ready, but I didn't feel like I was ready to take on that responsibility. So I I wanted to be every, you know, I don't want to sound like an army commercial, but all I can be and, and continue that philosophy because any great warrior or martial artist has a philosophy or develops a philosophy for life. It's not just about achieving rank or, you know, doing anything. It's about being an influence on yourself, others, sharing, creating, you know, more than just an understanding, but, you know, the next level of being. And you do that in martial arts by perfection of the warrior craft, by, by you know, putting yourself into the fire and, you know, the furnace of training by going beyond what you thought you were physically capable of into the next level and then the next level and just breaking the glass or the glass ceilings into the next level. And then it just becomes a part of you. And it's like church. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's like for me, it's like going to a place where you throw everything out of, the, of what you're told and then you are what you create. And what you want to create is, is perfection in yourself but still maintain the humility and the the human being that we can all be at, at the highest level. So that's yeah. what it is for me. That's what it is for me. It's not about the rank. Rank comes by after you get past a certain rank, you know, what it is is you're given this rank because you demonstrate and you are the culture and you further the culture of the warrior, of Taekwondo, of Hakido, of, you know, whatever it is that you you continue to practice and then you're able to pass that on. That's, that's the key. And uh, for my part, uh, I have passed it on a little bit because my three daughters have uh, decided to join me on the journey. So (laughs) 
<laughs> that is wonderful. Lord, you're going to have three of the best bodyguards when you're, you know, in a few years, you're going to be on, like, uh, I can't remember. I think it was Enter the Dragon, right? Um, Han has yeah. had his, his daughters as his bodyguard. Yeah. But, you know, who are you going to have that's going to protect daddy more than your three daughters? So good for you. That's the ulterior motive. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you have trained with some of the heavyweights uh, in the martial arts world. Yeah, you mentioned uh, your your teacher, Master Chung, uh, Simon Ree, Philip Ree, Superfoot Wallace. Uh, what are some of the uh, insights that they've given you that stay with you to this day? Wow. There's not enough tape or bandwidth or hard drive to go into it all. But let's just say that um, it's just a philosophy of constantly learning and creating, you know, again, that, that uh, ability to connect with what is present and what is needed. You know, I, I remember Master Chung with me when I got into teaching. He gave me the students that <clears throat> needed the most attention or, the, or, or were not furthering themselves in even the simplest of tasks because I was able to connect with them and find a way to motivate them. And I'm still doing that on a daily basis because being a human being, you know, you, you get to, you know, sort of explore the highs and lows of every day and things as mundane or as simple as, you know, doing what you need to do by going to the store become, you know, uh, an opportunity to share and to train. So something like uh, working with or learning with guys that were already incredibly skilled I mean, I remember watching Master Chong and Master Simon Ree and Master Philip Ree, you know, come within just millimeters of killing each other. <laughs> yeah. And then just pick themselves up and, and carry on, you know, whether it's sparring or anything else that they were doing, practicing technique, advanced technique, and then just carry on and then, you know, bow and then and then the the endurance and then the philosophy and then them sharing some lessons with me as I was a, you know, end of 17, turning 18 when I first started. And I needed somebody to, to kind of show me, you know, some boundaries and structure and stuff like that as a man. And uh, I can remember taking a private, this is kind of, you know, idiosyncratic, but I'll, I'll go into it. But Master Philip Ree, uh, I had taken a private with him and uh, this other young lady that I knew at the time. And I think I was a purple belt or something like that, orange belt. And I hadn't paid him, you know, I was, I was washing and waxing cars and doing anything I could to make money. And he said, uh, you know, Lauren, I understand, you know, you, you're a student and you're doing what you're doing, but, um, you know, you agreed to pay me $40, I think it was for this lesson. So is our friendship worth $40 to you? I pulled out my two twenties that I had and all the money I had for food for the next few days. And I put it right down on that table. <laughs> so, you know, little things like that, you know, is a philosophical lesson. This is the way of the warrior. This is the way, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we have to pay the bills. We have to, you know, do what we have to do as far as a business aspect of martial arts, but I'm sharing also knowledge with you and I'm creating the paradigm of integrity and ultimate accountability, which is when you're standing in front of somebody else who, who wants to, you know, kick your face off, you know, can you can you hang with them? And, and do you have the speed? Do you have the technique? And do you have the ability? And, you know, being around these guys, and I used to go on Sundays and fight, even as a blue belt, 
Sunday, there was classes on Sunday, which is very rare in schools today. And uh, the masters and the black belts that would hang around that Sunday afternoon, I would go as a skinny little, you know, 155 pound soaking wet, you know, bean pole and move around with these guys, James War, Chris Williams, Vernon Villemanet, you know, uh, Master Ree, if he was there, uh, other black belts, Master Wallace, if, you know, Grandmaster Wallace, if he was there, anybody who was there to throw down hoedown on Sunday afternoons. And then I would go to the classes during the week and spar. I couldn't wait for Wednesday or, you know, Tuesday. We know fight night. Couldn't wait. And, uh, and it would be easy to mix it up with these other incredible athletes that were there, others that were had incredible prowess, uh, natural gifts, you know, because I'd put my time in. I, I, you know, I'd done the do on Sunday with all these guys, and they would let me, you know, they wouldn't rip my face off. They would say, Lauren, you know what, you got to do this if I do that. And, you know, so they would share this knowledge. And that uh, has always stayed with me, you know, that, um, you know, here are these great athletes and great martial artists that were killers, honestly. And, and uh, they let me hang out with them and learn. So that that sort of thing, you know, you can strip anything away that you do every day. You can go into traffic and be, you know, enraged on the on the, uh, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, or the LIE or wherever you go in some place. But then you can get into the zone where nothing affects you because you're able to go into this place where you stood in front of you know warriors and you've prevailed or you've learned your limits and passed them. So you know that's incredible. I mean, and and working out and being Superfoot Wallace's you know kick dummy or whatever and and, <laughs> and getting in the ring with a guy like that is just incredible. And the, you know the man is you know in his 70s, late 70s now, and he's still going to England. He's still training. He still knows what he's doing. And Master Chung just got his jiu-jitsu BJJ black belt from uh, a series of Brazilian masters I know uh, in Los Angeles, and he's in his 70s. And, you know, so these guys are just still, you know, a testament to the incredible power of the mind and also their uh, genetic gifts as well. Uh, as human beings, but you know, we, we we transcend all of what we are as human being by using our mental capacity and then carrying on. And the martial arts is a great way to focus that. Yeah. Now, as a a student from that era of uh, martial arts schools to an instructor uh, to where you are today, how different is martial arts training? from when you started to what you see in schools today? Is it really, really different or um, has it evolved or has it become a little more watered down? Your honest opinion. Well, I mean, honestly, look, there's a whole new breed of athlete. Uh, you know, you see guys like Scott Adkins or you see the guys even 20 years ago that could do these 1080 kicks. And so the thing about the martial arts in general, the business of martial arts is I think has diluted the actual path because there are people that come in, family, families. I, I can remember at Master Chung's, for example, you know, there would be parents that had been kicked out of the school, but they still brought their kids to the school because they were that passionate. You know, I think about the soccer moms and dads or, you know, the hockey moms, according to Sarah Palin or whatever, right? 
and you know they're on the sides and you know they're trying to create they're these tiger parents well the thing is is when i started i went on my own my mom never went to the to the dojang she you know my dad did show up at my black belt test the the families and the culture of martial arts has changed when i started martial arts i went there to jun chung to learn how to fight i went there to learn how to you know take care of myself in the street take care of myself and my you know whoever i'm with in any situation and that's why i wanted to learn martial arts is because i wanted to be able to you know I, yeah i'd go to tournaments and, and test myself out for a little piece of plastic but and under supervised conditions but i wanted to learn how to fight and i wanted to know that i could handle my business and handle anybody of any size by using technique and speed i was just greasy lightning fast and so i got to use that and learn how to use that now today you know the business of martial arts and over the last 30 years the business of martial arts has changed and you have all this sort of you know everybody gets a certificate or everybody gets a something for attending i think that's a dilution of you know the the overall art i think that there's a lot of people that do the best they can giving the physical or, you know, whatever constraints that they're born with, you know, maybe they're not going to be able to do the splits. Maybe they're not going to be able to achieve these things, but have they, have they put themselves to the test and, and are the masters and teachers putting these people through the, shall we say the mill to find out exactly what they're capable of. And I say, you know, in, in this time and space of America and, uh, what we're doing, you know, where there's, well, we've got an hour for this and then we have to go over here and then, you know, you have tennis later, or you, you know, that whole kind of thing. That didn't exist in the 80s and, nine, you know, maybe for some it did, but, you know, so that's the thing. I think that now you, it just depends on where you go. Martial arts has become a business and is a way for people, you know, instructors, especially who are inspiring to, you know, take whatever somebody thinks they know or can learn and then give them something uh, for that in exchange for money. Look, we all have to keep the doors open, the lights on. But the thing about it is I've found that a lot of the, you know, places that I've been to and judge testings, these people wouldn't make it to Blue Belt, you know in my in my uh, experience but are they doing the best they can with what they've done and can do well okay you know if if the master there thinks they have uh, i can sit there and pick them apart because i'm a perfectionist and if it were my student i want them to know every movement and understand every aspect of that form no matter how simple it is it's perfection in just even doing a front stance or that down block for you know, a, a million times to make it perfect every time and understand exactly where each part of your body needs to be and why you're doing this particular technique and what it is that you're mimicking in a form. Or if you're fighting uh, or, you know, you have to fight one-on-one, -on -one, two two-on-one, are you at the peak physical condition, at least for your test? Uh, there's a lot of things that have gone by the wayside, like breaking, for example, you know, now you've got these little thin quarter inch, you know, boards 
that are, you know, look, I'll tell you what, you know, a board at 5,000 feet is a lot, you know, stronger than at sea level. You know, if you go break boards in Albuquerque, New Mexico, they're going to be a heck of a lot harder than at sea level. It's a trip, you know, but the whole thing is, is, you know, that oxygen level and that level of understanding or the mind being able to go through the brick boards, this, that, the aspects of the test, you know, need to be that well-rounded. And everything is, should be to a certain standard, but there is always, um, you know, shall we say poetic license or master license where you change this move or that move. I don't think that it's as thorough as it should be or could be in this day and age with a lot of schools and a lot of, um, shall we say tradition? Because the thing about it is, is if I were, when I tested for black belt, I had to know every single thing from white belt up to black belt. And then beyond that, so that if anybody came along and asked me or needed me to show them, I could. And I could explain to them every single minute detail of every single bit of your stance, of your motion, of every movement, and why. And why it needs to be a fist away or this away or that. So that, you know, there is this uniform in in this ability for technique to be passed on in a certain way. Then you create your own technique. You know, you do the Bruce Lee thing and you, you know, find your own style, your own way. But you have to have that balanced route. And if you look at the best champions of MMA in the world, they have all studied Taekwondo. They've all mastered footwork. They've all mastered movement. They've then they've taken that one mastery of one art and they've then built upon these other incredible paradigms. You look at me, Leota Machida, uh, uh, Anderson Silva, uh, Anthony Pettis, uh, all these great MMA guys who get in the cage, and that's really insane. You know, you think about you know locking the door after he's so gladiatorial and incredible, and uh, now they're going to throw down, you know, and get bloodied up and keep going. It's incredible, um, and that's another reason why I wanted to do striking because I never could when I when I got horizontal with other other uh, athletes seem to do the grappling as well as they could. And the way my body is articulated, I'm kind of long, and uh, so I didn't have that leverage that maybe a smaller person would have. But I had to reach the distance of speed to to smack somebody and get out of the way. And any pancreation art or any art that ends up on the ground. You know, hey, it's it's not it's not going to be any rules at that point, and I'm gonna you have to knock me out because I'm not going to let you get that close to me. So that's the thing. That's why Hapkido was great as an augmentation to the Taekwondo. But yeah, so you know, um, it's it's all a journey, and it's it's up to you and every body type and every person. You know, there's an art for you that is best for you, and of course, the ground does the most work as far as uh, you know. If you wanna you wanna hurt somebody put them on the ground my thing is is not to get on the ground with them because i don't <laughs> i don't i don't know if their friend is going to come up and stomp my head in right so there you go good points good points now uh just to, to touch on that a little bit you you studied taekwondo and hapkido what is it about those particular styles that attracted you to them or caused you to pursue uh them in the first place and uh to play off of that further are there other styles that uh, you seek to pursue because there's something there that that pulls you to it. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned, yeah, Taekwondo and Hapkido. First of all, Master Chung's system involved Hapkido technique uh, along with boxing. You had to learn how to box. 
And um, I think, you know, as Bruce Lee showed us with his, you know, Jeet Kune Do system, you know, his 10 different styles and then the no style, you know, you, you have to learn some of the really, really rudimentary things. And, you know, footwork, Taekwondo has the best footwork, I think, of any martial art uh, because it is so in- intricate and complicated, but yet simple. And the line is so incredibly powerful. When you learn it, Hapkido is a natural transitional thing to punching and kicking. Eventually, you're going to grab, you're going to hang on to somebody. If you want, you can throw them, lock them up, let the ground do the work, stomp on their head, punch them, and then be standing and aware and ready for another opponent or walk away or, you know, that kind of thing. And so the self-defense aspect of that. Now, I've I've studied Wing Chun as well. I had schools and then had guys come in because, of course, you know, Bruce Lee's influence. Uh, if you watch him, you know, back at the Long Beach Internationals or, you know, all of his old stuff, I mean, it's just the incredible power, speed, and ability. And then if you understand Wing Chun, you understand it was it was created by a monk, a female monk 330-some-odd years ago who was five foot one ish and had broken down 108 ways that the upper body can move, 108 ways the lower body can move. And now how you can defeat someone who's twice your size, a, you know, height and weight. So, you know, there is, in is, you know, more techniques. So you, you know, you want to learn the essence of those techniques, but again, you have to find and derive your own technique from what you learn uh, from others. So Taekwondo and Hapkido were of the Korean masters that I had studied with. I had gone to other schools and learned Shotokan and, you know, um, went to see my sister train with Jerry Bell and, you know, all of these other various uh, masters in their arts, Yukita Khan, you know, Benny Yukita's and, 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 you know, just kickboxing or whatever it was, full contact styles and styles of Kupsilwan and, uh, Hapkido and um, Gung Fu. And then the ultimate is, of course, weapons. Um, you know, once you, once I learned or got into the black belt arena, then I started learning the short staff, the long staff, you know, knives more so. Um, for me now, as, uh, you know, in my mid 50s and, and aging, I want to go back to Hapkido and learn the cane more again. And, practice that kind of technique because what am i going to be walking around with eventually probably a cane right if i'm lucky and uh so an old wooden cane with a hook on it is the most you know or rather the handle that is shaped like a hook is such an effect i mean master philip Ree used to throw me around and use me as a demo dummy you know wearing the hogu which is the chest guard uh and whack me around with this cane and it was just so phenomenal to, you know, experience that and uh, to, to see the effectiveness of all of this and to, to understand the levels and, and then, you know, derive from them everything. And basically, even with the screamer or niece, you know, fighting with sticks, which is amazing. If you want to learn speed, you start working with weapons and you start using, for example, the Eskrimar, you know, uh, sticks or and then Arnis and Kali with a knife and a stick or whatever, you know, you, you think ha- hands are coming at you fast, wait till a stick is coming at you, you know, which is exponentially fast and longer, then hands coming at you are slow. 
So, yeah. you, you know, you, you kick the gear up with these other things. So I've studied and trained in all these various uh, arts. I got to tell you, uh, some of these Filipino arts and Silat, I think, are incredibly effective and incredibly, you know, subtle. Um, but, you know, you never know. First of all, knife defense, there is no knife defense. You're going to get cut and you're going to get messed up. So if you can't run, you know, have a gun. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm living in Florida now. I have a permit to carry and I do. So, you know, that's the thing. I'm a warrior. I'm a martial artist. So I'm ready. But as far as studying and growth and line and potential and, you know, assessment and of, of where you are and what's available to you, you always need to understand what you can do with the empty hand. And then also be able to roll up a newspaper or a magazine or, you know, just pick up anything uh, and and use it to your advantage if you have to. And then, of course, the greatest weapon is the mind. And and you uh, you must always keep training that and focusing that because sometimes you can just look at somebody and you know exactly what to do and you know exactly what they're up to if you can make that connection. Also, you have developed your instinct so that you can feel you know, like Bruce would joke about or say in his, you know, movies, don't think, feel. Well, you know what? There it is. And, um, you know, you're able to sense that and people can sense that okay. about you. That's great stuff. I, uh, I'm i Filipino. And one of the things in my school uh, that um, I'm kind of excited about is that I will have the opportunity to uh, learn a little bit of Eskrima. So, um yeah, I'm hoping to be able to add that to my personal arsenal one day. Absolutely awesome, because that is again, you know, you're you're dealing with such great technique that uh, you can use anything. Uh, you can always you, know, you can create a weapon if you have a stick. Look look at what the Filipinos did with the conquistadors. They came with their metal swords and their uh, you know uh, metal armor, but they had only chain mail over their groin. So what did the what did your ancestors do? Well, they wouldn't attack the groin, boy. They took that stick and went and just emasculated these fools. They fell down. Now they have a sword, you know, and they would just carry on and use that speed ethic and also the line and that fearlessness that you were born with uh, in your in your culture and and um, and the spirit, you know, uh, that you have in your culture. I mean, my my daughter is half Filipina. I've been in the in the Filipino family. <laughs> you got that down, and so I totally know. Um, and I love I love the Filipino culture and Filipino people. So good for you, brother. Cool, thanks. Now, um, I have to say it's inspiring to hear how important and how much the martial arts has resonated with you. Uh, you're you're such a student of, of martial arts. Just from following you on social media, you share a lot of martial arts content. That's always encouraging when I talk to guys like you and uh, and other people that have been guests on my show that the the martial arts still has such a hold and such an impact that you choose to continue and share it and and that does a lot for people like me who are just starting out so so please keep doing that. Thank you, man. I'm kind of like a martial arts junkie, you know. I it, martial arts is I get high when I see these guys doing you know this incredible technique and I can't help but share it. And I'm not, you know, a person who, you know, thinks that I'm better than anybody else. When I see excellence, I applaud it and I want to share it and I want to give people, you know, that forum or, you know, my little, uh, my little posts or my little thing to, you know, give them the kudos. 
And it's so cool, Jeff, honestly, to have three generations now of fans from the films that I was fortunate enough to do. And the Chinese had created this choreography and I had the athletic ability, the instinct and everything to be able to show up on set, not know what the heck is going on (laughs) and then have them show me what to do. And then in the space, be able to say, okay, I need to move a little bit to this side because you're about five foot four. I'm six foot two. So wait, my arms a little bit longer. Can we, can we change the angle a little bit? Can we do this? And then be able to just modify and adapt and articulate no matter what. And so I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be challenged. And when I see excellence in martial arts and when I see people really aspiring to, you know, achieve this excellence, I just, I'm a junkie. I can't get enough of it. I, you know, it just gets me, gets me high, man. (laughs) No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now let's get into that a little bit. Was acting always going to be part of the picture for you when you were growing up? No. Um, my mom, look, I, my mom was a commercial producer and director. She was self-taught how to draw. She had become this advertising icon. And, you know, in the fifties, she was directing television commercials, you know, which is unheard of for a female. And then in the sixties and I was, you know, carnation milk kid. Cause I, I could have, I could have been even more, I could have been a child star, but my mom pushed me away from that because she saw how it made children or, kids or whatever not be themselves they became this product i my mom moved me to beverly hills because i was getting my little butt kicked on my way to school uh going to this private school and i was going to have to go to john burroughs which is um you know predominantly shall we say a multicultural high school or junior junior high school and i was going to just get my butt kicked every day on a regular basis so so she found a way for me, you know, to not go to LAUSD school, but go to Beverly Hills school. So she, you know, we worked, she worked her butt off so that I could go there and be there. You know, in essence, acting, I had been around all of these stars growing up that my mother had hired. And, you know, I knew all these people and these people knew my mom. I mean, there's just, I could just sit here and name drop forever uh, about all the people that I was exposed to. And my mom never pushed me to do that or be that. She wanted to be me to be educated. She wanted me to find my own way. And uh, again, that's why I kind of found and fell into martial arts because I didn't really have a male role model. My mom did a great job, but she couldn't teach me how to be a man. And uh, but she did the best she could. But so I never. The the only reason I got into acting is I was fixing my doctor's house with these other patients of this doctor who couldn't pay their bill. And so we're over there sanding floors and painting and, you know, raking leaves and do whatever. And this actor says to me, man, you should come to my acting class. You'd be really good. And I'm like, I don't know about that, man. You know, it's all good. You know, it's cool. John was his name. I can't remember his last name at the moment. But so on a lark, I went to this acting class and the coach was Alan Landers, Alan Levine. And uh, he taught Stanislavski Meisner technique. And uh, it was not about acting. It was about personalizing, substituting, using these techniques to be in the moment, et cetera, et cetera. Not that I ever got to really show any of this stuff in the movies that I made, (laughs) but it kind of prepared me for being Johnny on the spot. But the whole thing is, is I walked into this class and was thinking I was just going to watch these 12 people do their thing and read their sides. And the coach, actor coach comes up to me. 
And he said, Lauren, I want you to try this reading out with this, uh, with this actor. And I thought, okay, you know, with some words on a paper, I'll get up there and I'll say the words. Well, I got up there and I was shaking. There's only 12 people in the class and, and the acting teacher. And I'm shaking like a leaf. <laughs> you know, I'm up there, you know, like trying to figure out what I'm going to do. So I figured, you know, if anything, this is going to teach me how to speak in public. It's going to give me poise and composure when I'm, if I'm ever in front of a crowd and if I'm ever tasked to read something or do something that is scripted, um, whatever profession I go into, I will be able to, you know, be around other people and, and not be nervous about, you know, doing what I have to do. And so it turned out to be this journey very much like a martial art where you had to learn a craft and you had to put yourself into these imaginary circumstances and do this and do that. So it was never a part of what I had thought I would end up doing or be. I didn't know what I was going to be. I was in college, you know, studying psychology and economics as a major. And that was just because of what my father thought I should do. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in the karate studio and that's what I ended up being and doing. But the acting was just a, a happenstance. It just, it, it just, it just was a lark. And then it hooked me because um, I could captivate people. I could make them laugh. I could make them uh, emote or feel an emotion based on my performance or based on what some, some words I had uh, learned. And then I could also do this in front of other people and see if I could actually make them believe it. Now, you know, the business of acting is a whole different thing. Look, there are people that are in front of the camera. There's so many other people that could do the, exactly the same thing and perhaps better, but it's, it's a business. It's a machine. And uh, there are certain people that get to be at that strata and certain people that are going to be, you know, the money makers or the brand of the machine. And uh, that's what happens. But, you know, the fact is, is it's the art. It's martial arts. It's the art of you know, performance, it's storytelling, it's part of our being to want to tell stories or want to watch stories and be a part of that and share in that way. It's, it's very much it, it, akin to martial arts. Yeah. All right. So speaking of stories, your big break is a pretty classic Hollywood story. Uh, take us through that if you could. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm 22 years old. Uh, my father, bless his heart, rest, his, rest in peace, he, he was this sort of amazing, incredible person that I hadn't really connected with. And he was going to go to Africa with, um, with my stepmom. And I had asked him, I said, Dad, you know, we've never really done much you know, can, together. Can I, can I go to Africa with you? And nothing came for free with my dad. So I went to Africa with my dad, but I had to figure out how to pay the, the plane fare. I begged my mom for the money, you know, figured it out, gave up my apartment, came back to L.A., had nothing, had to move back in. My mom, can I sleep on the couch? Yeah, go ahead. And um, so I'm selling used cars at Claude Short Dodge in Santa Monica. I haven't sold a car all week. I'm just going crazy because I have to be there from 6 a.m. until 9 p.m. every day during that week. And so I'm at the uh, at the karate studio because I, I, it's finally Friday night, and it's like 9:30. I just got off work. First thing I do is drive. I did. I knew I had the weekend off because that's when the real money makers were going to go be there on the lot. You know, uh, not me. 
<laughs> and because uh, I was a newbie. And uh, so I was there at the, at the studio and I was punching the bag and doing my thing. And Jose's vacuuming the floor and everybody's gone. And, you know, I got a key to the studio so I can lock up after after um, Jose was done, you know, cleaning up the school. And the phone rings. First of all, who calls a karate studio at 930 or 10 at night? looking for martial artists well apparently roy haran from seasonal films in hong kong does and uh so jose answers the phone and says lauren can you talk to this guy i can't understand him (laughs) and i said sure you know so i get on the phone i say junshun taekwondo can i help you and he says hi this is roy haran i'm a producer from hong kong i'm looking for a guy above six feet tall i can do martial arts and act and i said you're talking to him (laughs) And he goes, okay, great. Well, um, you know, can you come to Altadena to this house, this address on Saturday? And da 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 da. And I said, sure. And I said, here's my contact info, and and I'll see you tomorrow night. Okay. Well, he calls me the next morning. And says, you know, I can't do it tonight. I, you know, I, I just can't. I, I'm busy. I said, look, it's the only time I can do it. And because I just knew I had to get over there and be first or be in the mix. You know, it's one of the first folks over there, or I was gonna, I was not gonna have a chance. So I went over there, I knocked on the door, uh, had my you know big old karate bag and all my equipment and whatnot in, in with me, and, and this guy opens up the door, bearded Guaylo, and he looks me up and down, he's not very impressed, and, you know, I'm, he's like, yeah, come on in, you know, so I change into my black belt, and I we go out in the backyard, and he has me do some technique, he says, show me what you can do a little bit, you know, show me some of your kicks, your punches, you know, your 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 technique did that he threw some technique at me and had me show him some reactions he said all right you're okay and we changed and i changed and i went in and uh, read a script with this maria elena chileno person that, who had helped him rewrite this no retreat no surrender to script that he kind of i don't know you'll have to talk to keith strandberg and by the way we got to talk about keith strandberg you know as part of this interview absolutely had ripped away the script from keith who had written the first no retreat no surrender and turned it into this whole other movie and I guess ostracized Keith from the entire situation. But that's a whole other issue that I, I wasn't even aware of. All I knew was I was there and I had a chance to impress this, uh, this guy. And so he had me read some lines. And for the first time I'm reading with Maria and this guy starts to laugh and he's cracking up, you know, listening, I guess, to his own dialogue, his own stilted dialogue. <laughs> And, uh, you know, but I'm making him feel like, you know, I'm the guy. I'm the right guy to play this role. So, you know, um, chewing my fingernails and a week later, you know, he's like, okay, I'm going to sign you for this film and you're going to be on a plane in three days. Go to Century City and sign this contract. I don't want to hear any shit from you about the contract. You want to read the contract? Go ahead. But just sign it or, 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 or go away. I don't want to discuss anything with you. Okay, so I, what do I do? I go to the lawyer's office in Century City and I sign the contract. <laughs> and uh, then, I'm, then I'm, I'm, I'm off on a plane. And Matthias Hughes, thank God, is is uh, you know drawn into this whole paradigm. He was just fresh off the boat and there in uh, in uh, L.A. trying to make a name for himself. And he was a terrific guy to work with. And then I meet Cynthia Rothrock. I, I meet Huang Jung Lee. I'm now in the mix with all these incredible Hong Kong um, Chinese, you know, stars. And and Roth, Cynthia was phenomenal. 
to, to be around. And uh, they fired the American crew after the first six weeks because they wouldn't get in the, in the swamp water or do some of the nasty stuff necessary. But the, you know, the Chinese guys were ready to rock and roll. And it was such an incredible zero to hero experience. And let me tell you something, being up there, you know, and I'm standing in front of, you know, all of this crew, all of these sets, all of this production that had been held up because I guess Van Damme had convinced Kirk McKinney that didn't need much convincing because Kirk was already working on a very well-paying soap opera in, uh, in uh, Hollywood at the time. And Van Damme was doing whatever he was doing and, you know, he was worried about safety. Well, yeah, he had every reason to be worried about safety because it was definitely, you know, I, I thought they were going to kill me at the end of the movie because of the way they treated me. I made sure every week that I, my mom had checked my bank balance that so they had wired some money. So at least she'd be able to get my body back after, <laughs> after the end of the shoot. Because that's how I felt like, you know, these guys were just, you know, Yun Kuei and whoever would come in to sub for him every once in a while, he'd have to go back to Hong Kong to finish a film or to go in the editing room or do some pickup shots in another project. But these guys just had a, such an incredible work ethic. And um, they were impressed by me because I was willing and, and definitely and definitely able. But, I, man, what an education to go in front of the camera and be with all these incredible uh, athletic, you know, uh, stuntmen and, you know, choreographers and great directors and, and not understand what the hell is going on, but have, uh, you know, at least some semblance of, of uh, knowledge to be able to carry it through. Yeah. Now, that's. Absolutely a far cry from the Carnation Milk commercial. <laughs> so no, no question about that. <laughs> and, and that's what I've heard. I've heard that Hong Kong directors are really known for being meticulous and, and really demanding. So uh, how much uh, did they expect from you? And what kind of stuff did you have to do to show that you could deliver? Well, the thing about it is, is I was so eager. I was such an eager beaver that I wanted to do everything as much as I possibly could. And they embraced that. Sometimes I wouldn't understand why they were yelling at each other. And, you know, I'd say to the, I'd say to these guys and, you know, they're yelling at each other in Cantonese. I'm like, how come you all keep yelling at each other all the time? No, we're just working. Oh, okay. Well, do you have to do so at that volume? I don't understand. It seems like you guys are pissed off all the time, but okay. And, um, you know, so the thing about it is, is, you know, Yun Kui was a, was a great influence and he didn't speak any English, but, you know, he would just give a, he, he, he had a sense of humor. He was incredibly gifted and was able to, you know, Roy would translate for us and then translate selectively. I think whatever he wanted Yun Kui to hear that we had to say. But basically what it turned out to be is, is you get to know each other. You get to understand each other. You, you're, you're thrown into this situation and you understand what's scripted, but then you're asked to go on to a different level in understanding. And you, you have to communicate. And the thing about it is, is there's something about that word action. And there's something about that, you know, that process that, you know, for, I, I happen to think, and people have told me that I have, you know, kind of a, a little bit of charisma or a little bit of a gift. And the thing is, is that the camera doesn't lie. So I think doing the acting thing and, you know, being exposed to all these great martial artists and seeing all of these other things allowed me to kind of turn it on, you know, when, when the camera's rolling and also be a part of this moment. And, and then again, 
you know, carry on with what the expectations were. And these stunt guys, bless their hearts, at a certain point, they came to me and they said, Lauren, Lauren, you, you work, you do everything, we know work. So <laughs> you, you take a rest, you know? And I'm like, okay, you know, I will, but you know what? I'm here to learn too. You guys are so incredible. So why don't we let the editor decide what take is better? Let me do as much as I can. And if there's something I can't do, you guys go for it. You know, do whatever you want to do. But you guys do, do a couple takes. Let me do a couple takes. And let me learn. And they really appreciated that and they respected that. And uh, we all, you know, we became so close, even though we didn't speak the same language. We, we throughout all the movies and the various teams, because usually the Hong Kong stunt team, they have, they'll have, a, you know, a master coordinator. Like I got to work with Tony Leung Shin Hong, who was the Green Dragon master in the first Ant Man. I'm still doing it in his mid fifties and we were about the same age, but this guy had such a maturity and, you know, a gift. And then the five man stunt team, which can basically double anybody on the show throughout the entire show, whatever their shape size is, these guys can step in and double and, or step in and fight and, or do whatever, and then make it all sync together. And this is the days before what they do today. Today, they pre fights and, you know, they bring it, they show it to the director, and, you know, okay, here's what we're going to do. He can see it and go, yeah, that's good. Let's do this, do that. Then we could pop the star shot in here, you know, so you never know what's going to happen there. You were expected to kind of be ready to go and do anything that you, you could possibly do. And I, I embrace that. Speaking of Keith Strandberg, I read an interview on City on Fire where, uh, and and for those that don't know, Keith Strandberg's producer, screenwriter, he had some kind words uh, for your work ethic. And uh, he said that working with fighters like you, uh, quote, were like dreams come true for the fight choreographers because they could do just about anything, giving them free reign to be as creative as possible. Now, did you know? that you could do anything or was it just a case of you being young and dumb and gung-ho and more just willing to do anything regardless of what it did to your body? Well, it's definitely done a lot to my body. (laughs) And when you get older, it all comes back and says, Hey, you remember when you did that? Well, (laughs) that's why this hurts. So, you know, that's, that's part of it. But the thing about it is it's a little bit of both. The fact is, is if I hadn't had these great examples as a martial artist, I wouldn't have, you know, excelled and then superseded that, again, when I spoke about earlier, breaking the glass ceiling, pushing yourself to the next level, you know, meeting other great athletes, training with Olympic level or world class athletes. And that's the thing is I got to hang and work with the best in the world at that at that time and or of their time. And I could hang with them and I could also, you know, make them go geez, oh man, can you believe this guy can, you know, jump and do what he does and and whatnot. And so, you know, when you bring that to it, it makes everything better, makes you better. They make you better. You make them better. And, you know, one thing feeds off the other. And that's, that's great. You know, I mean, Keith, uh, you know, Keith didn't have a good time of it sometimes because I kept trying to tell the Chinese directors, you know, we really need this acting part because they'd maybe give us two takes to speak whatever comes out of our mouth. They don't care. They're, <laughs> they're interested. They'll, they'll dub it anyway. That's the, what they're used to doing is dubbing stuff later. And um, we're shooting production sound and then we'll, they're, you know, giving you 17, 18, 20 takes on the action because they want it to be absolutely perfect. 
I remember chunbong. I will never forget that word, which which means fake in Cantonese. You know, they we'd finish a, a fight and be or a gaff. You know, eight twenty moves and then caught chunbong. Oh shit! That means we got to do it again. That means we got to do it again. We didn't sell it enough for you know. <laughs> For the guys or somebody else, you know, if there's five, six of us in there, somebody wasn't doing it, you know, well enough. So we got to do it again. And we would just keep doing it and doing it and doing it until it became absolutely perfect. But as far as the acting bit goes, you know, pass the meat in front of the camera. Do we get an image? Good. Okay, next. Oops. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's something that, you know, unfortunately, Keith as a writer and, you know, wanting to tell the story was unfortunately getting frustrated with because he he crafted these you know scripts that were a lot of it's tongue-in-cheek but it's entertainment man it's supposed to be it's supposed to be something fun to watch and something interesting and you know um it's not supposed to be reality but it's hard for a guy like him to to come in with something that he wants to see because he's made the movie in his mind he's written down and then all of a sudden it morphs into something else. And that's what what happens on a film. It was, it was kind of frustrating for Keith sometimes because he'd see, you know, what was written on the page of Lucas would just nix it or, you know, and then I'd fight for it. Or, you know, so it, it's one of those things where, you know, it's very hard for certain departments when you have uh, a different language and different culture that's actually producing and making the film and what their sensibilities are. And, um, you know, but we, we, we found a way to make it all work and the stuff that's on film can never be you know replicated i think i mean it, there's just stuff in there in these movies that i did no retreat no surrender 2 and no retreat no surrender 3 with keith vitale who you know now that i'm down south here in florida he, he's coming <laughs> down next month and we're gonna hang out and you know we're, we're just great friends but that's another thing you know i got to be and work with these world-class champions and martial artists of such phenomenal uh, level. And, you know, I wish I could have worked with Jackie Chan. I wish I could have worked with, you know, a lot of these um, other other Hong Kong legends. But, you know, that just wasn't in the cards. Well, speaking of your good buddy, Keith Vitale, Keith Strandberg mentioned a story where you may or may not have uh, unintentionally broke his wrist. Keith Vitale's wrist, that is. You want to explain that? <laughs> okay, well, first of all, there's nothing to explain. I don't know what Keith said. I would have had to listen to verbatim what he said but he was there first of all would keith vitale ever want to be around me if i had intentionally broken his arm he had never broken a bone in his life okay <laughs> here's a man who had a thousand fights and he never broke a bone you know keith uh had it, we, it was three days before we're supposed to start shooting and the hong kong stunt team takes us to this little karate studio that has nothing but industrial carpet glued onto concrete as far as floor and so we're through with the sort of the stunt tests and stunt auditions keith and i have sparred a little bit and you know, uh, I've chased around DD, you know, trying to kick him. He's like, try to kick me as hard as you can. And he's just not there when I try to, you know. And, um, you know, so now it's sort of the end of the session. And I'm like, hey, I want to show you guys a couple things that I, I can do that I've been practicing. So I had the biggest stunt guy hold the heavy bag. And I did, you know, double side kick, you know, that wrestler kick, you know, where both you just plant both your feet completely horizontal into the bag, punch off and, you know, triple side kick, side kick, back kick, you know, whatever it is, aerial kicking, right? 
split back kick, this and that. So uh, then I think it was uh, Tony Leon Shinhong said, okay, Keith, your turn. And Keith wasn't, I guess, expecting that. And the Hong Kong stunt dude walked away from the bag and Keith ran up and did a double sidekick. And I, th- I thought, well, shoot, maybe he does double sidekicks without anybody holding the bag. Who am I to tell Keith Vitale that you need somebody to hold the bag? I, I'm not going to say anything. You know, he jumped up, he did that double sidekick and the bag spun. And so he went straight down from like six foot in the air, horizontally straight down onto his, uh, onto his arm. I, I can't remember if it was left arm or right arm. Um, but he broke his arm in three places. Oh yeah. And we're three days away from shooting and he's gone to the hospital. He, he got up immediately and, you know, very calmly said there's something wrong. And, uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's something, I think it's broke. And basically he stayed, stayed in bed for 10 days, uh, on painkillers and whatever else he had to do. He, look, this guy is so genetically gifted. It's incredible. He's 10 years older than I am. He looks like he's 10 years younger than I am even today. But um, so the, the sad part about it is, is that NG, the executive producer, came to me and was ready to throw Keith under the bus. He basically said, Lauren, do you know anybody who can play your brother? And I looked at him square in the eye and said, no. And that no meant if you replace him, I'm walking. And, uh, that's, that's the way it started. So they rearranged the schedule. He stayed in bed. Uh, Keith rewrote the opening of the movie so that he could take a bullet in the, in the arm, but I would never break any, look, I've broken a few arms. That's for sure. Um, whether it's from people trying to block my kicks or, you know, testing, or we're doing some technique and, you know, somebody's coming in and, you know, hey, I, I'm sorry, I broke your arm. You know, we're doing a throw, and it's a wrist throw or an arm throw, and you know, their their arms broke. People broke their arm trying to block my kicks, and uh, shoot, I've had broken ribs, broken face, broken all kinds of things. But you know, that's part of the arts. You, you know, you're, you're learning how to fight, you're learning how to do it, and it happens. But no, Keith Vitale, let me tell you something. That guy is one incredible athlete. A B. After 10 days, he showed up and with a broken arm, did everything necessary to make that film work and carry on. I mean, you can't replace that kind of uh, not just ability, but just the courage and, you know, the out and out guts and the person that he is. I mean, we relate in such an incredible way. And what, like I said earlier, you know, when you do a film, you become a family, you become so close to each other. And he's, uh, he's just, you know, I, I always said he was an idol. I, I looked up to him when I was coming up doing karate. Cause every time I'd go to the newsstand, I'd be looking at all the karate mags that I couldn't afford to buy. I'd read them all. He'd be on the cover, you know, of, of like five of uh, five out of six karate mags. There's Keith Vitale. And, um, so it was just great to work with him, but no, I mean, you know, whatever Keith Strandberg said probably was misinterpreted or, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was tongue in cheek. Cause I think it was just one of those, uh, uh, unfortunate accidents. I didn't do anything. All I did was I was just there for the stunt audition and the stuntman put us through our paces and, right. and he broke his arm, you know, that, that happens. Yeah. 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 Speaking of, um, Keith Strandberg a little bit more, he wrote King of the Kickboxers, which, Showcase some incredible fighting, especially between you and Billy Blanks. 
take me through some of the highlights and some of the lowlights of that production because it it seemed pretty intense. But uh, in in reading a lot of interviews and and uh, reviews years later, it, it seemed like there's uh, so much more going on behind the scenes there. No question. I mean, it started with the auditions and stuff. For you know, I, I was lucky enough to be in on on the casting. And, you know, you had Don the Dragon Wilson coming in for Keith Cook's part and, you know, uh, Gerald Okamura and all these people coming in. And they didn't know who the hell I was or didn't care. But, you know, Gerald Okamura almost, you know, put me through the wall, you know, showing or, you know, showing some kind of choreography or what he was going to do. And um, I was there, you know, being the, the reader and the test dummy. And, you know, so they didn't want that. Don, bless his heart, didn't have the movement that was necessary. And then Keith comes in and he just blows everybody away. Now, Billy Blanks was on the, you know, on the roster. But the thing about Billy is, look, what ended up happening is, is whoever had the greatest athletic ability, Keith Cook already, you know, I think five-time Waco World Champion, um, when he showed up and then you got Billy Blank, seven time world karate champion. He shows up and he, you know, does split back kicks in the air and, you know, stuff that, I mean, this guy could pick the buttons off your shirt, but he's 230 pounds. That's how fast that guy is. And the thing is, is so it started there and then the, the bar was raised. We get, we get to Thailand and we start doing this movie and we would train all of us, you know, in the hotel hallway or whatever, you know, get to know each other. And, and everything now is heightened because Lucas Lowe, who did the, was the director on Notre Dame Circuit 3, he was looking to outdo himself on King of the Kickboxers. And now we're in Thailand. We're not in Tampa, Florida. And um, we're, we're there and we have to be literally on the spot all the time aware there were so many things going on that um, were absolutely beyond our control. But we would get out to these locations and to these places and have to really put it on and not necessarily know what was going to happen. Now, I didn't really know what was going to happen on, on all these movies. I think I mentioned this in other interviews. You just show up and you got to be ready for anything. So the fact is, is thank God, Billy was as humble and as incredibly gifted as he is as an athlete and as a martial artist. Because he came to me early on in the film. The first uh, shots that he does in the film is with Bruce Fontaine. And Bruce is wearing this white, you know, uh, overall outfit. And, uh, you know, he says, well, what are we waiting for? You know, I got to do stuff as part of the movie. You know, I got to work tomorrow. You know, let's go. And he said, you know, Billy says, they're waiting for me. And you see that guy is like, this the 235, 235. He's huge in that shot. Well, he lost a good 25 pounds over the next, you know, uh, month from just being outside 12 hours a day fighting in 95 degree heat with 99% humidity in Thailand. And, you know, he he came to me early and he said, Lauren, it's your movie. I want us to look as great as possible. Whatever we can do together, you know, we're a team and, you know, you're you're the lead and I want you to look great. And that is just so incredibly generous and phenomenal to have that kind of athlete and that kind of person. You see that he does that every day with Taibo. 
you know, he gets all, he gets in there and he gets people motivated and he wants to be everybody to be the best they can be just every day in their life. And, uh, so I got to work with him and then, and then Keith Cook was so much fun to do these scenes and to create these characters and to be out in the middle of wherever and not know what was going to happen, uh, and, and get it done. Now, look, there's all sorts of little stuff that occurs, you know, during the, the production. But, you know, the fact is, is that at the end of the day, what matters is what's captured forever. And, uh, you know, we, we did some pretty cool stuff. And, and after that, you know, Billy did a lot of other, other shows. I should have done, made some better decisions, I think, with my career. But, you know, everything happens for a reason. Everything is what it is. And, um, you know, look, to get to work with Billy and get to work with Keith and all of these great, incredible, you know, athletes that would come uh, and, and do these things. And, and you know, working with Keith, we're, we're out there in the middle of uh, Keith Cook. We're out there in the middle of, you know, some Klong off of wherever in Thailand. And he's doing this fight scene where he finally has to show his abilities. You know, he's not really drunk. He's, you know, playing that role and doing this that. And he's like, Lauren, I got to do this three, these three spin kicks. I can't get around the last one. I said, jump. So he listened to me. And sure enough, he goes, wham, wham, poop, bang. And, and this guy could, he, he was so incredibly gifted athletically. He, one of the, the split roundhouse kicks, he comes off the stairs. He does the split kick, you know, kicking two guys. And then a roundhouse kick guy comes up to him. Well, you know, he's going to do it and do it as best he can first, second, third take. Well, the guy came up and he pretty much knocked the guy out with, with <laughs> that roundhouse kick. So anybody who says that flying kicks don't work, well, bullshit. <laughs> and, um, you know, the thing about it is, is it wasn't Keith's fault. You know, Keith had to put his foot at a, a certain place and this guy's head was just, you know, three inches too far in. And uh, so he got smacked, and there's you know blood coming out of his mouth, out of his ear, and uh, that's part of you know doing an action movie. You know, you're gonna, some, somebody's going to get hurt. You've let the acting take a backseat to your personal life now, but is there a project that you have in your back pocket, maybe that you might be sitting on and uh, waiting for a return to the screen? You know, we'll see what happens with all that. Um, the backseat, I'm now getting back into the front seat. I was in the back seat because of taking care of my mom. I devoted myself to taking care of her, and um, she passed away a few years ago, and then my dad passed away uh, a year ago this May 1st. And, you know, he's buried in Arlington. My mom is with me here in the living room of my house uh, in an urn. But the thing is, is that, you know, that was more important to me than anything. So I moved to Hawaii and built a house there. Good thing I sold it when I did because where I had my house is where the lava flowed in, in uh, 2017. And, um, you know, uh, so I kind of listened to my inner self, inner voice, instinct, God, mom, granddad, whoever t talks to me and moved. But, uh, you know, is there something out there? You know, I'm trying to create it. And I'm also trying to see if there is a need because the thing is, is that I, I don't have a desire to go out and, you know, kind of be in a B movie that's, you know, going to be uh, an expendable thing or something like that or be a part of somebody else's gig. I'm kind of interested in coming out and, and doing something memorable again. And that's very difficult to achieve because, as you know, you got guys like Scott Adkins, which, by the way, Scott, 
1991 when I did the Clash of the Titans at Birmingham was one of the little kids that ran up to me and I gave him an autograph. And now you look at Scott Adkins, he's killing it all over the place. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and it's just, you know, again, this next gen of athlete that uh, he is, you know, he's able to do these incredible things. And then guys that I helped come out, like J.J. Perry, you know, I'm sitting there in Hawaii, I'm watching Undisputed 3, and I'm looking at these fights, he's going, wow, this is awesome. Hey, that kind of looks like a J.J. move. Because I gave J.J. some of his first jobs, you know, choreographing. Now he's doing second unit stuff. Right now he's working on Bad Boys 3, redoing the entire ending again. Because Sony Pictures didn't release that in 2017, but now they need to, you know, put it out this year. And, uh, you know, kick uh, Martin and uh, Will Smith, you know, to the curb. I guess I don't think there'll be a four. But, um you know, in any case, the the whole thing is is I'm kind of waiting for the right vehicle. I'm 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 always helping filmmakers, you know, to aspire to do what they're they're doing. Keith Vitale's coming again because he's written an incredible script. I mean, it's an Academy Award level scripts. Keith Vitale has written such a great script about this American frontiersman, an icon that has you know hasn't been uh, publicized or used yet or 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 uh, given a vehicle in the last 50 years uh, to, to make. And I've, I have the privilege of reading this, and, and he trusts me in being a part of it. So he's coming. We're going to talk about it. But Keith has written the script. It's incredible. So I'm hoping to be a part of that and uh, you know see this American frontiersman portrayed in this great vehicle that really could be like a Dances with Wolves oh, nice. thing. And it's so... And, you know, he doesn't really have a huge agent or this or that, but it's just, this work is great. So I'm going to help him with that. Hopefully that'll be something. And then behind the scenes, there's all sorts of talk and, you know, stuff about doing some studio and this and that in, in the state here in the South. So we're, I'm working on that. Um, I'm also writing a treatment that I'm going to, you know, try to do with Keith Vitale. Because, you know what, when he came here a month ago and we did a couple of pictures on the beach, the freaking Facebook and Instagram just blew up. It was incredible. It really was. And it was just fans saying, we want to see you guys do, do something again. And, you know, so we'll see what happens. I'm writing a little story and, you know, look, we're, we're always getting sort of people that want to do stuff, but it's a matter of doing the right thing because I, I'd rather, I'd rather sit back and go, Hey, you know what? Scott Adkins is killing it. You know, you got all these great movies coming out. Great. You know, you guys keep, keep killing it. But what's going to be the right thing for me? So now I'm kind of out of the rabbit hole. I'm taking care of mom, taking care of dad. I've got my own house here. You know, I can't be in LA, honestly, uh, because I just, I don't know. I can't deal with that whole cycle over there because, because I've been there, done that, don't need the t-shirt and, and we have moved on. And so, you know, the thing is, is that there's all of this potential. I'm going to be going to Europe uh, in a couple of months. And there's all of these things that are, you know, hopefully creating some kind of synergistic possibility. But it's just a matter of what it is, when it is, and the right thing. And there's one thing that you learn in movies. You can't control everything. you got to kind of roll with it. But you, but you will know you know, if you, if it, if it comes and you might get the chance to do it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. Now you mentioned Scott Atkins. Uh, what is your take on the evolution of martial arts and film and TV today? Well, I mean, not very many people know this, but 
the way I paid the bills for years and years was to show up and do stunt stunt on TV shows, do you know fight uh, fight scenes and other stuff like that, and do other stunt stuff and get paid and go home. Uh, that way, I could be the single father. As far as action, you know, the thing about it is, is that unfortunately, I have this personal opinion that all of these comic book video game kind of fights that you see out there, there's there's a whole new generation that have this unrealistic view of what you know action is. So everything is so super superized, I guess you could say. You know, you've got these characters like Marvel comic character. You know, it just I can't watch it. I can't relate to it. I'm not impressed by it. Certain things I am. You know, when I see uh, like John Wick or I see stuff like that, well, that's that's my boys. You know, that's 8711 action design, Chad Stahelski, you know, and J.J. Perry and, and all of these, David Leach, all these incredible uh, stunt martial artists and martial artists at the core. But um, Scott Adkins embodies, you know, the ability to do it all. The ability to, you know, uh, he got started, I think, doing you know, some, something in, uh, X-Men origins Wolverine and JJ came back from Australia or wherever they shot that and had worked with Scott and, you know, all of these things. And, you know, Scott is, is the epitome of this next generation of athlete. Now that was done 12 years ago or so though, you know, that movie or those, those movies. And here now Scott is the hot property He's able to act with his British accent and do his thing. Got a great presence. And now martial arts action films have, you know, kind of blossomed into this whole next golden age, if you will. But a lot of the action for me is has got to be real. I have to feel that sense of danger that a lot of times I don't feel because it looks so choreographed. I don't see how this could actually happen. Hey, there's some cool moves. And I kind of go, Hey, that was neat. But do I feel like it's, it's dangerous? Um, not anymore because it's so blurred the lines between what's expected, what's shot. And then it really depends on your director of photography and, and your, um, you know, your editors that create that. And, and then also now that everything's on a, a digital format, you know, you can sort of amplify or decrease, but, you know, the, the speed or the this or the timing. But the grittiness of film does not exist seem, seemingly anymore, except on certain shows. And there's a certain rhythm that needs to be created. And I don't see it a whole lot anymore. I just see all of this sort of flashy stuff. I don't see the danger. Sometimes it happens so fast or you don't see the acting aspect of the fighting. Yeah, you get some great reactions from the stuntmen. Don't don't get me wrong. But you don't see that acting aspect, the beats, the 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 timing, the rhythm, the reactions, the you know, the result, the you know, the human moments are missing in a lot of these newer gaffes. And look, I don't watch a lot of it. Because frankly, I can't I sit there and I go, wow, that's that's what it is. It's real fancy, but I'm not afraid at all for whoever's in, involved in this because I already know what's going to happen, you know? And maybe that's, maybe that's old man 
saying that, <laughs> but I also kind of go, whoa, hang on, wait a minute. You know, uh, that was just too smooth. There, I don't see where, you know, after this five minute fight scene, anybody's out of breath or anybody's, you know, this, you know, there's just whatever it is, whatever little minutia that it is. And, and maybe it's the digital format too. And the, and the, um, the way that they shoot it, like, unfortunately a lot of it's still on steady cam and you cannot shoot a fight scene on steady cam or on, you know, any kind of gyro. It just takes the power away from whatever's going on in front of the camera. I don't know how they're shooting it, but when I look at it later, I go, okay, they punched in too much on that. I want to see all of that. I want to see the evolution of this. I want to see that movement from, you know? So when I look at undisputed three, for example, and I see Boyka and I see Michael Jai white and Scott in the ring, I go, wow, that's awesome. You know, yeah. look at look at Scott. He's the camera's locked down. They're doing their scene and their thing, and he's executing. But I really like watching Scott because he brings that physicality to it. But also, you can see he's really you know putting everything into it. He's doing it, and a lot of the other folks are you know doing what they do. But it's just it's just the fanciness. I like the grittiness of like a fight when i see a fight on on the on the screen no matter whether it's one got one on one or one on 10 or whatever and then you know it just gets a little bit too much for me as far as okay you know uh that was cool and all that but i don't buy it so that's just me no fair enough fair enough awesome all right i've kept you a long time so let's go let's do a lightning round you ready uh, i don't know what that is but let's do it <laughs> all right here's how it works i'm just gonna throw out uh some quick questions uh, give me whatever comes to the top of your head. All right, here we go. Uh, potato chips or ice cream? Ice cream. Uh, chocolate, vanilla, or strawberry? Strawberry. What's your favorite Filipino food? Oh, it's got to be uh, pancit. <laughs> nice, nice. What's your favorite line from one of your movies? I've been there for 10 years. Ah! <laughs> Excellent callback. <laughs> All right, uh, you versus Keith Vitale in a karaoke showdown. Uh, I think Keith, cause he probably got the high voice and you know, he's better with the ladies. <laughs> you versus Billy Blanks in a pizza eating contest. Oh, absolutely. Billy Blanks. No <laughs> question about it. Cause he'd just be like, he'd be like, Lauren, are you going to eat that? Are you going to eat that? Hurry up. Are you going to eat that? Are you through? Are you done? Are you done? I'm done. Nice. All right. You versus Cynthia Rothrock in a game of charades. Um, absolutely Cynthia, because you know, who, who the, who the heck wants to watch me act anything out <laughs> when you've got Cynthia Rothrock there? Come on. <laughs> nice. All right. Last uh, lightning round question. And it's a trick question. So I hope you get it right. But what's your favorite podcast about Kung Fu and martial arts movies? It's gotta be the Kung Fu driving podcast. It's just <laughs> gotta be. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. All right. Um, where can fans go to keep up with you? I, I know you're uh, on Facebook. Where else can they go to keep up with your inspiring content and, and everything that you're doing to further the the arts and martial arts. Go to laurenavedon.com, L-O-R-E-N-A-V-E-D-O-N.com. Just splashed a new site up and I'm doing some blog posts a couple times a week and uh, people can, you know, connect there. Also Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. But I'm just now coming back, like I said, out of the rabbit hole and uh, I touch on a bunch of different things there at laurenavidon.com. I got a lot of people asking for autographs. Soon I'll be doing that. 
I don't like to charge money for autographs. I'm trying to figure out a way to do it digitally and, you know, do all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, it's available, but remember we're dealing with old man here. So, you know, uh, I'm trying to come up to speed with it. And then I got folks that want to send me stuff that I can sign and send back. It's going to happen. I just have to get set up here a little bit more and I'm all about my fans. Love you guys. And, uh, hope to be back soon and, and doing something cool. Very cool. Uh, maybe an old man, but still an inspiring old man. Uh, and there are a lot of fans that are still looking to those uh, King of the Kickboxers fights and, and going, man, one day I can be like Lauren Avedon. Bless your heart. <laughs> Listen, uh, there's, uh, I know there's a, a bunch of martial arts conventions going on uh, here on the East Coast. If, if you can make it out, it would be great to uh, meet you one day. And, uh, and let's please do this again. I would love that. I would love that. Absolutely. Would love to, to meet all the fans and uh and hang out it'll happen and uh look forward to that when it happens very cool lauren avidon thank you so much for sitting with me best of luck with everything thank you my sincere thanks to lauren avidon for sitting and chatting with me for so long so many great stories and an inspirational outlook especially with regards to training in the martial arts now if you want to follow along with lauren head to laurenavidon.com i'm going to post that link in the show notes he's also available on facebook on instagram so hook up with him there and let him know that you checked out his interview here on the kung fu driving podcast otherwise he does post very regularly on all things martial arts so go ahead and check that out also, stop by my socials on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me at kungfudriving at gmail.com. And while you're on Twitter, check out my podcast pals at the hashtag Castaways for some other cool podcasts covering a wide array of topics. Quick shout out to AJ Ricciardi on Instagram, Andrew on Facebook, and JR on Twitter for always checking in and saying what up. Always good to connect with all the listeners, and I appreciate every note and every prop, so thank you guys for tuning in. Until next time, Poison Clan, peace. Poison Clan rocks the world. Some action, drink a little wine and get drunk and then we're fighting Ha, this time it's swamp We smash the place up with a dragon claws We walk into the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine and get drunk and then we're fighting Ha, this time it's swamp We smash the place up with a dragon claws I see the iron fist debunked from the daily prayers Shouting monks on their hands, running down the thousand stairs The fate of Lee Khan, now's in King Yu's hands With the fearless idea, they're roaming over the land Yeah, the little bitch soldier is old and wiser He wants a world of peace because he doesn't want to fight Yo, got the venom mob laying down the law Bruce Lee delivered kicks, guaranteed to great jars Fight for the cars, then pause, hear the applause Not again, back kicks will defeat the outlaws Very good, but boards don't hit back Yeah, the death jewels here, David is coming back The Tai Chi master, jet is even faster Bitch had a little drink because he is the drunken master Once upon a time in China Rosamund Kwan is real fine But see Maggie show your spine off Golden Swallow has arrived Shang Chi movies will the hero will survive We've got the brave archer make his way to the top Of the mountain gonna fight May as well pick a spot Yeah the sky goes black Cut the vampires back We've got Lam Ching Ying to kill them all to so stand back You place the black magic on the soul of the sword And our sword will travel until his body's on floors Yeah Wing Chun Shaolin and Manti style Yeah the Defeat the enemy and watch you run for miles Blood will spill now on the mountain tops When we bring back the soul of the legendary pops Walk into the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting ha. 
this time is warm We smash the place up with a dragon claws We walk into the tea house ready for some action Drink a little wine, we get a drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's warm We smash the place up with a dragon claws See it's a game of death yo, you're facing the big boss It's once upon a time in China counting the TikTok The Shogun Assassin's Lash and Blood are just drip drop The head kick, neck drop, balance that won't stop Wanna kill Bill, better get the assassins He's got her just in yellow but she is in the dragon But in the tea rooms, that's where it'll happen She got the bodies on the floor when the blood It'll splatter against the walls, no fear at all To kill them all, there's always blood spilled When you head into a war, fearless Unleash the fist of legend that the car gently I'm Bolo Young, yo, I'll always be a beast You rumble in the Bronx, yo, I'm rumble in the streets And it's simple, see the facts are these It's only ever gonna be one Bruce Lee Welcome to the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we get it drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's warm We smash the place up with a dragon claws We're walking to the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we get it drunk and then we're fighting